Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Life is full of what-ifs. Some awesome. Like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome. Like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out-of-pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what-ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Jewelry isn't a gift you give just once. It's a way to remind your loved one of a beautiful moment every time they see it. Blue Nile can help you find the gift that says how you feel and says it beautifully with expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com and experience the convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com to find the perfect jewelry gift for any occasion. BlueNile.com. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Welcome to another edition of On the Continent, your one-stop shop for all things to do with European football. I'm Dotton Adebayo. I'm Andy Russell. And I'm Nikki Bandini. On today's episode, Juve, or should I say Juve for you, Nikki, uh, felt, <laughs> more, <laughs> felt more like singing the blues against Chelsea. But, well, how could they lose with Italy's poster boy from the Euros on song? Also, the nightmare of Lisboa, at least that's what they're calling it in Spain. And what's football got to do with it? As the ultras of Nice run rings around the match stewards to take on the players of Marseille in the mother of all pitch invasions. So, Andy, as tempted as I am to begin with uh, the punch-up in Nice, I think we really should start uh, with more important footballing matters in Italy. Uh, so, Nicky... Milan, Juve, I'm Cockney, what can I do? <laughs> uh, what's going on there? <laughs> um, I, well, uh, Milan, um, two different stories. Milan, who I thought played brilliantly against Atletico Madrid and I think have been a real um, 
credit to themselves in this Champions League group stage. Um, they got thrown in very much at the deep end on their return to European football in this ridiculous group that has Liverpool, Atletico Madrid and Porto in it. Um, and they gave, I thought, a creditable account of themselves at Anfield. And I thought the first part of the game against Atletico Madrid, frankly, I thought they, they blew Atletico away. Mm. Um, and then it all unravelled for them with um, the story that is told in the Italian um, papers is very much just uh, straightforward refereeing in, injustice. I, I think it's a bit more nuanced than that. Both yellow cards to Frank Kessie, I, th- I think they are... Um, you know, that they aren't unreasonable yellow cards. Um, whether or not you should, as all the Italian reports keep insisting, follow law number 18 of the FIFA laws and, and show a little bit of, of good sense in these situations. And and I think that is one conversation. And another one is perhaps what you could say, um, these decisions seem harsh when you look at the full 90 of how Kachir managed the rest of the game. I didn't feel like that this was the treatment they got that every player got. Um, and then the penalty decision at the end, which I, I did feel personally like Lamar also has Zam on that ball before it's given. I, I'm, I think that was a very ambiguous one. I'm surprised. And and I think a lot of people who are used to the Italian methodology of using VAR were surprised that the referee didn't at least go and look at that one on on the pitch side monitor with it being such a crucial decision at the end of the game. So That's something we've seen quite a lot, actually, haven't, yeah. haven't we, Nikki? It's sort of like... We're not yet at a Europe-wide consensus of, of of how VAR should be should be used, and we we saw that in uh, Salzburg versus Lille last night with the the Turkish referee who spent six minutes going over a penalty decision. <laughs> and in 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 Turkey, it's very much you watch the video, you exhaust every angle, you exhaust every possibility, and then you come to a decision. Which and is it, funny because it's the Turkish referee, yeah, uh, yeah, for the Milan game. So that but that didn't happen, um, and you know, look. You can get into that, and and that probably that's for a different kind of podcast to, the, to this podcast, and um, mm. to get into the the, the sort of the, the needle of that. I did think it was um, certainly uh, uh, a very sort of fair comment from Diego Simeone at the end when he said, "Look, if I was in Pioli's shoes, I would feel how Pioli feels about it," which I thought mm. was you know um, a, a, a very sort of realistic way of, of responding to it. And I think it's just tough because Milan are coming into this after their period in, in the wilderness, the, 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 the banter era, as it sometimes gets called in, in, in modern <laughs> Twitter uh, language of, of not being in Europe. They've come back to Europe. Milan are the European club in Italy. At least that's how they've always wanted to style themselves. And it's such a big thing being back at San Siro. And, and even though it's still only half crowds in, in Italy, that moment when the Champions music plays at the end, and at the end of you get that roar of the champions, because it always happens at the in the Italian stadiums, that sort of, they just, join that last part of it the champions and everything was so sort of everything was so sort of right in that opening part of the that game that big banner saying AC Milan is back yeah. behind the goal right. it's fantastic how could you not love right. that and I, and I think you know you could do all of that fanfare and then play I was going to use the worst word here play rubbish for uh, for for um, for um, the first games they haven't this is you know really young Milan team and I think they've really done themselves as I said before a credit and to have no points from two games really feels like a, an unfair reflection on how they've played. But, you know, this is the Champions League. They are in a very tough group and, and that um, that's just where they find themselves. It's a really strange group, actually. A lot has gone how, I guess, the, the, the casual fan, even the casual fan looking at the group would say that is a, a, a tough group, but it's not gone as you would have expected it. Every bit of it has been mm. a twist from... Um, the, the the first half at Anfield where Liverpool do as you were saying 
Milan were doing to Atletico. They absolutely blew them away and still losing at half-time, which was really extraordinary. Milan couldn't have played that first bit of the Atletico game any more appropriately, as you said, with the occasion. And the fact that this, these, these young players were like, OK, well, the, the rest of the world might see us as Milan... The, the European team, as, as you're saying, but, history. But, but we're history, yeah, but but we're we're making our own history. We're brave enough to wear these shirts. And yeah. the bit where Rafael Leal, who's just turning into such a terrific player, scores that opening goal. The swag on that is mm. unreal. And that's that's one of the things I wanted to, to sort of talk about. And, and I I do think well, we're going to get to Juventus more, aren't we? And there's and mm. I kind of want to juxtapose the two things because they are such different identities of. Um, of football and and perhaps clashing identities and ideas of Italian football actually in, in this moment that's quite profound, but Milan's identity is Raphael Leao. It is young swagger. It is mm. um, Stefano Pioli, who I think is genuinely one of the the the, the best man managers right now in in Europe, and, and who is really drawing all of the the various sort of uh, threads of individuality in that Milan team together, and I. I Honestly, when you, when you listen to any of these players speak in an interview, any of them, it always ends up coming back to, yeah, but you know, Pioli gave me this one piece of advice. Like he, he really talked to me about my game. He's obviously having such an influence on these young players. And Leao, if you'd asked me even a few months ago what I thought of him, I would have said, really frustrating player. You know, you can see how much he's got in his potential. He's got so much explosive speed, so much ability to dribble past an opponent. But... You, you never really know if it's going to happen. Like it's, it's, he's one of those players and maybe we're still not all the way there yet, but it feels like the fact that he's done it now on two Champions League nights in a row. Mm. I mean, that's all you can ask for. This is a young, young Milan team and the young players in it, the ones who you want to be most brilliant are in these games, even when, yes, as they were outplayed against Liverpool, still finding ways to deliver, still finding ways to, to stand up and, and not be cowed by the, the the situation, not be overawed by it, to take the game to teams. And I think that's so exciting. And it feels like it's simultaneously a, a huge shame that Milan find themselves in a position after two games already where you think, is there a way out of this? I mean, it's such a tough group. Are they going to be able to finish anything other than third at best? And that's going to rely on these two games against Porto. But at the same time... um. I think anyone who's actually paid attention to these games rather than just seeing the score lines, you can't help but feel good about them, even though they've lost both. They're not out of it. They're not out of it. And I think... <laughs> you still give them a chance. I'm yeah. not trying to be funny, I, but it doesn't look good. It's as just no points. Yeah. No points in that group is tough. Yeah, that, that's, that's true. But I think if you look at the group, it looks as if Liverpool are going to pull away. And that gives the other three teams an opportunity. I, 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 think, I don't think anyone's completely stranded just yet, like I said, I think I think Liverpool will win the the group with comfort. They 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 should win the group with comfort. And you know, as one of the things that maybe we haven't talked about in this group, Liverpool have been brilliant. Yeah. They've they've been brilliant in 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 both of those games. Um, but I think Atletico very unimpressive for a lot of that, and it is a performance that has been coming just as because they've not been very impressive in Europe for quite a long time as we were discussing the other week um, they've not been impressive in the league for several weeks as well and to lose to a team in Alaves who you know hadn't won a game until they played Atletico you know bottom team beats the champions seems a shock if you watch them in recent weeks it's not really a shock 
It's it's the result that matches some of the recent performances. And this was like a, a lot of their other league games, and they, they start terribly. And it, it was strong Empire Strikes Back vibes to, <laughs> to that, weren't there? With Griezmann popping up and, and, and scoring what was a, a great finish. And then Luis Suarez outsmarting Mania only just we have to say from the, the the penalty it was it was the opposite of a storybook ending really wasn't it yeah absolutely and and you know Suarez I think hadn't scored in away goal in Europe for for donkey's years I can't mm. think how long it actually was but a long time he's counting I'm sure <laughs> yeah um I'm yeah. sure it was a relief for him as well I think yeah you know it was um it was one of those situations where you just felt Actually, even after going down to 10 men for a long time, Milan felt pretty okay. Mm. But it's it's just such a lot to ask physically of players because having that extra man, because it wasn't a late sending off, it was an early sending off. Having that extra man for that many minutes is going to get to your legs. It's going to make you sort of more tired over that time because you just have to run further. You have to cover more ground. Um, and there was a, a really fascinating sort of ongoing um, battle with the substitutions. Um, uh, Pioli sort of reshaping his team in stages. At first it was Tonali came on, but by the end of it, you know, they, they'd always basically gone to like a, a back five, almost a back six in the sort mm-hmm. of camping out. But it didn't happen in one go. It was in stages. And so you've got that sort of him trading pieces backwards and and Simeone trading pieces forwards, bringing more and more of that attack onto the pitch. And it was it was a really fascinating game of football, actually. Um um, as as I mean, I've, I've found this to be a really entertaining Champions League group stage all around, to be honest. As always, uh, Nicky Bandini does put the ball on the penalty spot for <laughs> us to no, to show us the wider picture of this conversation. Because, like you say, Nicky, it's not don't necessarily I'm not just look that at penalty. The, someone else take. Of course, <laughs> somebody's got to put the ball on the spot. <laughs> and all I'm saying is that when you talk about identity, the identity. Mm. And that's a wider conversation than most football fans are engaged in generally. But I think it's a really important one. This identity of being the European club is kind of identity that Real Madrid have. If nothing else, we are the European club. And arguably, when you mentioned Liverpool a moment ago, I know several teams in the Premier League, well, a couple of teams maybe could argue to be uh, the British European or Mm. the English European team. But for Liverpool... They've created a new identity, which is as far away from their glory days of the late 70s, early 80s, as as you can imagine. They're, they're not the same thing. They don't have the same identity, the hard man in midfield identity and all that sort of stuff. They're playing elegant football all the time. And I wonder whether the problem for Milan in getting out of this hole of this group stage is... As much as it's a younger team now, that some of the identity is thrust upon them that, you know, you're a new face of Milan, but you're also the old face. I guess the question is whether whether you think that's really a problem. Because as you said, it will be it'll be difficult for them to get out of the group. I still think they can do it. I still think they're they're in with the shot because the group will polarise. The schedule's interesting, I think, because they now play Porto twice. Yeah. So whichever of those teams comes out stronger from those two games is the one that's still alive in the group, probably. Yeah, I, I mean, Porto, if they want to, you know, stay playing for Porto, they're going to have to play a lot better than they, <laughs> they, they, they played against Liverpool. So it'd be interesting to see how that shakes out. But I guess the question is whether you really think it's like a, a, a massive problem if Milan don't get out of this group stage, because obviously they would like to, but 
the performances having been out for so long are almost enough. Whereas Juventus, if you talk about identity, are the exact opposite. With Allegri, the style of football is winning football. That has always yeah. been it. And this was them kind of going back to type against Chelsea with, with their backs against the wall. Yeah, look, boring business side of it, Milan's priority is to be in the Champions League. The fact that they're back there, the fact they're going to get the revenue from the from the group stage, yeah. it's enough. Anything else is, is a bonus. Um, I, I, I think that um, Milan right now can feel they're on a very good track regardless. Um, and, and that's a very strong position to be in. Um, I do think just sort of to, to, to finish with, with them and just suppose with events, actually, uh, it's really fascinating that this European identity, I mean, actually a lot of it comes from when Silvio Berlusconi was the owner and was pushing that narrative and wanted these clubs to be the global club. But the idea is really that Juventus have always been the most successful club domestically. Mm. But Milan are, are right up there, you know, now a little bit behind, but have been right up there with Real Madrid as the teams that won the Champions League most, the, the European Cup the most. And so this idea comes from there. But then when it was Berlusconi at the helm, there was an accompanying idea, which Berlusconi was always very attached to that Milan should play attacking football. Milan should be a team. Back then, it was always we need to have two players up front. We need to have play in play in this certain style. Um, where Juventus were always the team that won the league a lot, and perhaps if if Milan are the sort of European um, ideal of Italian football, Juventus are the Italian ideal of Italian football, um, <laughs> and. You know, we're dipping into cliches here and, and, and this hasn't always been true and there's always, you know, fluidity with different managers at different times. But I, I do think there was this striking contrast between the way Milan played, which actually, by the way, is far more indicative of how Serie A is playing these days. Serie A mm. is a very open league. Yeah. One of, I think, easily the highest scoring, actually, the top five leagues in Europe this season by, by a margin. Um, but... Max Allegri is is from a different heritage. Max Allegri, who's obviously returned this season after a couple of years away, he is um, pragmatist actually by sort of um, by by um, approach. That's the way he's always been. But he's he's very much sort of someone who uh, believes the manager's job, and he's talked about this a lot of times. He, he says that first of all, he says the manager's um, uh, responsibility in a game, the amount he can impact a game, is no more than five percent. Football is paid by the players. Everyone mm -hmm. likes to get sort of uh, over the top about managers and how much we change things. In fact, our role is not that big. Um, but secondly, a manager's number one sort of responsibility is, is to do no harm. Now, I think Allegri is uh, very clever with his words, and in fact, when you look at even the detail of this game had a tremendous impact this game, right down to the fact that Juventus' goal against Chelsea was very clearly a training ground move. The ball went straight back from kickoff. They overland loaded the left-hand side and they played the ball up there. But I do find it um, this sort of fascinating contrast between Milan, who played a really sort of expansive and an ambitious game against Atletico Madrid and were ultimately undone. And on the other side of it, Allegri's Juventus against Chelsea, who... I'll be blunt, I expect them to lose this game. I expect them to lose it um, in a not pretty way, given the fact that they have started Serie A season quite poorly. No Dybala, no Morata. Right. You take away uh, and, and pieces from a team that's already but performing But they've got poorly. Chiesa, I'm just saying. And then Allegri uh, comes up with, um, and this is, again, classically Allegri. I'm sorry, I'm a bit sort of obsessed with the Allegri narratives this morning. Um, but Allegri, you know, another of these things he's talked about in the past is... Um, you know, I, I don't. I'm not an obsessive character. I'm not one of these managers who wants to be there like 24 hours. For me, it's it's a game of instinct and feeling, and you sometimes you just have to go with what comes into your you know your your thought and moment of inspiration. And 
Giorgio Chiellini is there at the pre-game press conference and then isn't in the starting eleven. Goes with this sort of unusual back um, uh, defence, which in the end did end up being more like a back four. I thought it looked like a back three with Danilo, Delict, and um, mm. and Manucci, but it played more like a back four. And this really sort of compacting the spaces so much in the middle of the pitch and daring Chelsea to go wide on them in that first part. And then yes, Chiesa playing as a centre forward instead of a winger for, for the, pretty much the first time. And relying on him in that first half, uh, together with Bernadeschi, to really just play on their pace and explosivity in in those moments when Chelsea made a mistake, and and it worked. I mean, Juventus gave up at times it was it was close to seventy percent possession, and never looked like conceding a goal. So Chesney was never busy, was he? No, yeah. which is remarkable with that amount of only at the possession. very end of the game was there a yeah. few moments, and they weren't really scary moments. Juventus. Mm. And in that first half, they didn't score, but they should have done because Chiesa, who is wonderful and I, and I adore him and I think he's the one player in that Juventus team who they just should feel unequivocally excited about his future. But if he has a floor, it's that he does not look up sometimes and he should have looked up and set up Bernadeschi to make it one in the first half. Juventus should have been leading at halftime mm. because even though they'd sat there without the ball for most of the half, they had a couple of brilliant chances and the biggest one for me was yes, Kiers opting to shoot instead of look up and, and find better. Well, you're so polite about this because we discussed this before with Kiesa and we know that he's somewhat selfish on the ball and you allow that if he scores yeah. and if you win the game. Which he did in the end. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. So it's kind of, well, do you want him to pass the ball the other guy? Kiesa, generally, he's, uh, he's world class. He is, when I, the games I've seen, which are only sort of like from the Euros to the Champions League, games he just looks every time yeah. he, he approaches that ball he attacks the ball as well as attacking the situation if you see what I mean it's I, funny. I really wonder as well if he ends up there at centre forward I really do yeah he, better is he better at centre forward well because of what you're saying yeah. like because he is he is selfish yeah he is yeah that, that, that you don't really want him as someone to animate the team almost mm. do you because that requires thinking of what is always best for the for, for the team but there, there was there was something I, I think in in that like the, the, as you said he could have squared for Bernadeschi in the first half but yeah. if Dotton or I a Chiesa you definitely shoot there <laughs> uh, and, then, and then you you score the goal and you, it's, it's yeah. like you go well I'm Kevin Peterson yeah. it's the way I play <laughs> don't don't you I, I, I love that link with uh, the other round ball game that we shall not mention again I, yeah I, I just want to put out a slightly sort of this is me being provocative um, because um, you can't sensibly compare Federico Chiesa with where he is in his career he's such a He's at such a beginning point and relative to the player much name, you know, he's actually on a sort of much later trajectory in terms of his age and, and when this player much. But the comparison that just can't not be in my head, given that he's just left is, you know, who's another sort of famous winger who sort of wing centre forward, we're not sure, but too selfish. It's the one who's just left. It's the one who's just left. It's Ronaldo. And look, Chiesa is not at Ronaldo's level. That's, a, again, mm. why it's a ridiculous comparison mm. to say we're talking about one of the greatest players of all time. But I do think that, funnily enough, opposite wing, right wing instead of left wing, stylistically in terms of what they are as footballers, like the, the way they play and why I think in the end we will see him up front, I, I think their, their sort of identities as footballers, because we've made this whole section about identity, maybe I have, um, is not totally dissimilar. I think there's some shared, some right. shared, um, I don't know, um, some shared threads between. Yeah, them. I think you know, for me, one of the interesting comparisons there is it just like 
uh, Cristiano Ronaldo, when you put him on the wing, he's always looking to cut in and go in the centre forward yeah. row. In any case, Chiesa does exactly. There's no point putting him on the wing because he's going to cut in and well, try you and can, shoot. But then you just got to make the rest of your team slightly unbalanced to fit around it, which can work. I mean, Ronaldo did that for years. <laughs> Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Let's move on to talk about uh, what did you call it, Andy? The massacre of uh, the, the, the the nightmare of Lisbon, the nightmare on Elm Street, but in Lisboa. Yeah, and well, as as whoever was sub editing for Marco last night was typing that, you could just see through the words <laughs> the little grin on their face. They were savouring every letter yeah. as, as they were typing. Yeah, of course, uh, yeah, yeah Madrid-based uh, Marco. But, but you can uh, understand why. Though can't you because this was an upset at the it, very least do you know what I, I think it was we talked about Atletico Madrid and upsets that were were, were coming mm. you know unsurprising surprises like you know when when you get for your birthday what was top present on your list it's something that I, I, I don't even think retrospectively you look at and, 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 and think yeah Barcelona could have lost there you look at Benfica going into this and we'll, we'll talk about them in a bit seven out of seven in the, in, in the Portuguese Liga they're playing well at the moment um, but I think at the moment the world at large is coming to terms with just how ordinary Barcelona are you look two heavy defeats in um, their opening two Champions League games um, no goals scored Six conceded. I think if you go back over their last um, six Champions League games, their goal difference is minus twelve. I, I mean, it's 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 remarkable, really. I think a lot of people struggle with them being mortal, and um, 
I think Steve Bauer on the English commentary of it put it quite well. They said that he said they're Barcelona by name, but not by nature <laughs> at the moment, Gosh. which I, I think is a very good way of, of, of describing it, actually. But um, I know uh, Ronald Koeman will get his degree of stick and clearly they've not been fantastic. But if anyone out there is still convincing themselves that Ronald Koeman is the beginning and end of their problems... When they get to the point where they fire him, which will arrive fairly soon, I think, uh, probably before we finish recording this podcast, <laughs> you know, shouts from outside production if anything's changed, uh, because they've been having a crisis meeting this morning at, at, at Camp Nou. If you want to see what Barcelona's reduced circumstances are, you, you just got to see who, who gets the job next. Because whether it's Pirlo, whether it's Roberto Martinez, and he's on such a wage at Belgium that they actually could afford to give them a ra- him a raise, even in their in in their current state. Um, it, it's it's going to be difficult for them as as well. And I think you, you look at the comparison. Benfica have a much better bench than Barcelona, and Luke de Jong, who had a difficult night, and I don't want to get on any individual players. Um, clearly, a, a lot of people believe, not unreasonably, that he is not of vintage Barcelona level which I, I think is fair enough he, you can't judge him on his on, on, on his worst game and he didn't have a particularly good game at, at, at Benfica when he missed some presentable chances but you know this this is where they are the, the coach has said it before um, Piquet's said it before and it is just it, it, but Koeman said after the game there's nothing new to say and uh, you know that's typical Dutch bluntness in a way but he's He's absolutely right. There, 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 there isn't. We, we all know where they are at this moment, don't we? Yeah. I, I, I sorry, you, you threw a name out there, and and someone threw it out to me this morning for the first time. I hadn't heard it before that that Pirlo is consideration. I that when I was thinking about it this morning, I was thinking about it from Barcelona's standpoint and how that seemed like a very odd choice given his limited experience. Now I'm thinking about it from the other side and thinking, my gosh, do you really want to be the manager who ended Juventus's run of nine titles and now walks into what is a and it's not going to go well if he goes there, is it? It's not going to no. go well for whoever goes there next Monday. No. But yeah, I mean, it's exactly as PK said. These aren't problems that we're suddenly waking up to because of this 3-0 defeat. Um, they are just fundamentally weak in a lot of areas of the pitch compared to the Barcelona's that we imagine. Now, we should say that their results in La Liga are still not that bad. Mm. There have been some slightly humiliating context within that like sending PK up front to be a centre forward and, and hoofing the ball at him for, for, for how many minutes it was in, in a week ago Sam Allardyce sitting yeah. at home rubbing his hands together <laughs> um, and and there have also been some some brighter moments Ansu Fati going back from injury and, and remembering what a talent he can be and, and, and can get you somewhere but, but I think that the Ansu Fati thing is quite interesting because that was mm. so emotional when he came on after 10 months out scored that uh, goal against Levante, terrific goal. Him wearing the number ten shirt for the first time, all his family there. It was, it was, it was really wonderful. But I think we talk about like, Joan Laporta only just getting used to the, the 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 reality of Barcelona. I think, despite us sitting here and talking about it and having been talk about talk, talking about it for months, people still expect to see the real in inverted commas. Barcelona. I, I, I read the, the match report and I think it was Lequipe saying, well, you know, we, we can have sympathy for where Koeman is, but why didn't he bring Ansu Fati on earlier? 
because he's just coming back from a massive long injury. Yeah. And this isn't, he wouldn't have won them the game anyway. And so, what an unfair thing to ask of him. Yeah. Like the 18 year old who's wearing the number 10 shirt which, you know, someone quite important was wearing a second ago. It's, it's ridiculous. It is, it is, it is ridiculous. But um, some of the reason why people uh, look backwards in a way, and it goes perhaps to the earlier conversation we were having about um, Milan and uh, Real Madrid as well. Some of the reason is because, look, for the last couple of decades, for a generation, they dominated uh, not just their domestic football, or at least one of two teams have dominated it, and they were right there in the mix. Yeah, every Champions League season, they're uh, right there in the mix. I mean, this this has been and this has been coming for a while, though. We know that, but nevertheless, remember what Nicky said about identity. Where is the identity here? It's completely lost, and that's 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 why the the the, the PK going up front thing is mm. is, is, is an issue. And uh, we, we've, I think though, you can get to hung up on identity. I mean, we've got, a, we've got a tweet here from Duncan Wall that says, um, who next for Barcelona after Koeman? Rumours are between Xavi or Roberto Martinez. Surely Xavi makes more sense, even if mm. he's less experienced, given that Barcelona will be reliant um, on La Masia more than ever moving forward. And uh, there's a tweet from Hannah Louise as well saying, what levels of panic stations for Barcelona now? Well, the, the panic is well underway. I don't think there's any doubt about that. But it's not just a panic within the club. It's outside the club. And the, the, the Xavi um, question is an interesting one because clearly he's going to get the Barcelona coaching job at some point. He has always been quite clear he wants it on his terms at the right moment. As Nicky was saying, it's totally unflattering to him. If he wants to build his dynasty, he can't do it now. He cannot do it now. It's on the right he, time. Yeah. Even, even if they were to have a replica of him and Andres Iniesta in the academy, which they don't. Imagine putting them in this team. But but I do think we have to say something for, for Benfica as well, because their identity, we're going back to them, them as well, was shaped by their their identity as the biggest club in Portugal is shaped by the, what they did in, in the 60s under the European Cup. And it's interesting, Jorge Jesus, who when he arrived in 2009 the first time, brought some brilliant attacking football some we are Benfica let's be brave let's show the world what we are kind of football so winning football attacking football and people loved him for that what they didn't love him for in that first spell is because he wanted to protect his legacy of winning titles so much he sometimes rotated for the Champions League thinking well, we can't win this and you know a lot of fans were like are you joking this this is us in the competition that made us. Mm. So even if European football has changed, you can't be behaving like this. And the way he's approached the Champions League the second time since coming back, I, I think is quite interesting. Now, the first season, last season, it was difficult because they were straight into the qualifiers against um, Pauk. Only one leg because of covid they had 10 bad minutes in that game and ended up losing the game and getting knocked out of the Champions League, which after he'd sat there saying, it's important to us to do well in the Champions League, it, it end up, ended up making him look stupid. And there was the fact that they'd spent 80 plus million euros on players, which is enormous for a Portuguese club and particularly in the pandemic. They've got this team that's ready for the, the squad that's ready for the Champions League and it's not in the Champions mm. League. Now this time, they've had to really battle to get in the Champions League. You know, you look at the rounds... Um, they got through. They beat a very good PSV Eindhoven side in the in in the last um, playoff round to, to to get through. And this, I think, is a game they absolutely t 
targeted. He's a coach who goes for the jugular. And I, I think George Jesus has sat there in the dressing room and gone, they're weak. Let's tear them apart. And as you say, at the end of it, Dotton, is still, we can say we beat Barcelona. You look at the goal that Darwin Nunez, who I know has been a massive David Cartledge favourite for ages, mm. the goal that he scores right at the beginning. He's in a position where, a bit like Raul Jimenez for Wolves at Southampton, he could easily hold it up, wait for the rest of his teammates to come up. He's like, no, no, no. I'm going to drag it inside and I'm going to make this into a goal. The strength of will in that is amazing. Then the whole stadium gets up. The Stadio de Luz is super atmospheric, even when it's only got 25,000 in it, like last night. And all of a sudden, Barcelona are really on the back foot. <laughs> Now, as much as we love to stick to the football, uh, nevertheless, sometimes there are some non-footballing issues that we ought to discuss, only because, you know, you can't see where it's coming from. In terms of crowd trouble in France at the moment, I don't know if we are approaching a, a kind of an era uh, that maybe many of us who have followed English football will recognise from once upon a time. And because, dread a bit. Of course, yeah. dread, because it kills the the game. It, it, and eventually it brings the politicians in to make it uh, more restrictive. And this dust-up, punch-up, brawl um, at Nice um, with... We have to mention, of course, uh, that it kind of started off with an uh, attack or bottle flinging at uh, one of the Marseille Marseille players, um, Dimitri Payet. Uh, what was that about? How, how did it even start? Well, I can't the, understand the, that. The, the thing was, I, I guess, in this season of French crowd trouble, Don, and it, it, it's, it's just been an epidemic of, of, of crowd trouble. There's no getting away from it. And a lot of fans ending up on the pitch. You had that. Uh, subsequently in the derby between Lens and Lille, which had a 50-minute half-time um, because, because of trouble in that. Um, you had trouble at uh, Angers versus Marseille. It actually predates um, the um, Nice-Marseille game because the, the I think on its own, the bit where Dimitri Payet gets the bottle thrown at him and it hits him on the back and he throws it back, you're thinking... Uh, yeah, that's 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 not on. He, he shouldn't get the bottle thrown at him, but he shouldn't he shouldn't do that. And he he got suspended for a game off the off, off the back of it, so he wasn't unpunished. But it was the feeling of the straw breaking the camel's back because Marseille have had a lot of that on the road in the previous game against Montpellier. Uh, Valentin Rangier, their midfielder, he was warming up as a substitute, and he he got hit above the eye um, by something uh, thrown from the crowd, and it drew blood, and he had to have. Um, some treatment for that. I, I, I genuinely think those Marseille players felt like under siege, really, at, at, at that moment. Um, now, th- there has been a reaction to that. Nisa having to play um, f- uh, three games behind closed doors. They're having to replay that game against Nice. We already, uh, against Marseille, we already knew that's happening. So Nice versus Marseille will be played in Troyes, quite a lot further north. Um in in the in the coming uh, weeks, but it's it's really concerning because you, you had um, 
Marseille are now currently banned from taking fans away, um, partly due to this. Um, and you look at like stadium closures and stand closures. For the French authorities, these are an absolute last resort. Of course, it was the first um, league to finish and not come back uh, when the pandemic started. And then we had all of last season, as everywhere else in Europe, with few and mostly no spectators. The last thing the authorities want to do is close stands and stadiums at the moment. Because, you know, when you go back and look at little clips of last season, it's rubbish. It's rubbish without fans. It's it's it's, it's so it's but so this, bloodless. This was even more rubbish with fans, frankly. Because, Abs- absolutely. And I, I'm not even sure we should be calling them fans because what I saw was a real um, well. It was unsavoury to say the least, Nikki. But you you think at least that we might be seeing a trend here? Well, I I hope not. Um, I, I, I desperately hope not. Um, I just, the, the whole situation, um, I, I can't see it completely in isolation. Um, when, when you think about what happened before the Euro 2020 final, where there was sort of scenes outside Wembley that I don't think anyone uh, would have wanted within English football. There was a chaotic uh, organisation and, and people breaking into the stadium indeed, but there was also just uh, stuff going on outside that, that was, um, beyond what what a lot of football fans uh want to experience at at a football game you know bottles being thrown uh, explosives going off stuff that made the situation feel very on edge and, and not safe for for young fans for instance and i i think that there's an element probably all across europe right now which is inevitable and 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 unavoidable that you've had people who because of this pandemic have been trapped inside for a very long time and who have a certain amount of energy that 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 is coming out in ways that isn't always healthy. And we've seen even some incidents around Premier League games as well of hooliganism um, already this season. I think you can then tie that into a much bigger context and a, a scarier context, which I was being sort of talked to about by um, professors, academics working in, in uh, sociology in, in as long ago as 2015, when I was writing a big piece on, on the Rome derby, that there has been some active politicisation of of football. I, I want to use the, the word ultra, ultra groups that, that um, we talk about more in Italy. I know that isn't a word that's sort of familiar in all languages, but the extreme fringes of fandom um, being actively targeted by political groups who want to sort of use the the mechanism of football the 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 relationships on on the curva in in Italy certainly to 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 spread a message and I think that when you put all that together in a much broader picture which is probably too big for a football podcast of just living in a time where extreme politics polarization is going on I think it's just a very heady recipe there's a lot of things going on there at the same time and it means that you've got people who maybe um, aren't political at all, I'm not suggesting these incidents in Marseille are political, but who might still come to the situation with that same sense of frustration that is um, resulted from being uh, unable to live life normally for a year and a half. And that look, a lot of us have felt frustration in, in different ways of being penned up and not being able to live normally, but that frustration boils up for different people in very different ways. And I think unquestionably, and unhappily, there is a section, and this could be a very small section, but a section of people for whom that is manifesting in quite an angry way, quite a hostile way. I, I, I agree with that. But I, I also think, like you were saying, Nikki, that this, this does predate the pandemic. Mm. If, if we're talking specifically about France, I think if you go back to 
the season before the pandemic interrupts football. So I guess the first half of um, 1920. Yeah, there's a lot of friction between the French football authorities and those ultra groups because they feel the game is being sanitised and their freedoms are being cracked down on. And actually it results in a lot more uh, homophobic and sexist Mm -hmm. banners in particular and chants because their, their viewpoint is you cannot tell us how to behave in our space. And the the ultras, or not all ultras, but a, a sizable, I, I guess, a, a a noisy portion of ultras, feel that their their right to behave exactly as they want in the stadium context is more important than anyone else's feelings or rights. I think that is absolutely unacceptable on every level, but it's something that. The authorities have to have genuine will, genuine bravery to, to, to actually do something about. Now, what I think is quite interesting is that you look at the reaction to this raft of crowd trouble um, from the clubs. It's barely anything. They've not really spoken about it. Basically, I guess because post-pandemic, they want to keep the stadiums open. Mm. Um, they don't want to alienate their customers, I suppose. And they're they're kind of looking at the government and saying, well, you know, you deal with it. You do something. Uh, Whereas whereas the government is saying, look, we've given you, we've passed laws that you can crack down on people, Mm. that you can ban people, that you can take people's season tickets away, that, you you know, whatever. But, you know, know, you've got loads of clubs saying, well, you know, they're all hooded. It's really difficult to identify people. It doesn't, to me, feel as if the club's really have the will to go after these problems. What about the players? Because what I noticed with this dust up was, uh, you, you know, you use that phrase, the straw that broke the camel's back yeah. for Marseille. Arguably, it was the straw that broke the camel's back for Nice as well. They were ahead in this game. They didn't want to see the game abandoned. And they were... Yeah, they've been com- it, it, those it players have been completely shafted. Of course they yeah, have. Yeah, totally. And, and you yeah. could see that they were trying to make peace as it were you know mm. they were I think the captain went over the knees captain went over to the crowd to try and placate them and they were like yeah you know you're all right but tell them like you know whatever they were saying in yeah, French yeah. I'm not as great a lip reader as you are but you know the, the, the players themselves have got a part to play in this if they are they, they've got to feel safe at work they yeah. have to and if they are you know I'm not going to compare it to taking the knee or whatever, but we've seen that as being an expression of player power, if you like, mm. over the last uh, year or so. And if they are as involved in this issue, let's leave the clubs to one side, they've got a mm. different agenda, then there's no football and the fans will then have to respond to that. Yeah, I, I think I think that's, that's something that's worth bringing up because that, that sense of the players have absolutely had enough I, I think that was that that was that was quite strong and I, I think you talked about Nicky about how the the fans are getting used to being outside again players are used to the fans being in yeah. again and I think that affects the way the game's played I think that affects the way you feel and I guess like 100%. modern modern best practice for stadiums is that you really penned in and it's mm-hmm. really intense 
That's interesting because actually, I suppose, especially with reduced capacities, people are less penned in. So there is less Maybe, of that, yeah. even by nature. And and just, oh, sorry, I, I didn't mean to cut you off, but I, like, I, I think that to stress the other side of that, almost the, the, the good side of it, even at the Euro 2020 final, which I have to say was really um, uh, in, in, in parts a very uncomfortable atmosphere, I felt like in, inside the stadium with, with very clearly people in there who didn't have tickets and, and mm. shouldn't have been there and stewards very clearly not in control of that situation. There was the other side of it, which was when England scored against Italy, that noise was so loud. And I thought to myself in that moment, I haven't heard this noise in so long, yeah. but nor have those Italy players. And I think it did have a real tangible impact on on the next 10 minutes or so of that game. And I think that's something that we love in football. Mm. That's something that we love. So even within that context, which I'm saying was a bad context, there was beauty in that context as well. It was wonderful being in a stadium even as an Italian who didn't really want that goal to be scored. <laughs> it was thrilling to be in a stadium and, and feel that heat again. I mean, that's that's the sort of the other side of the coin and, and, and part of why, frankly, we all fell in love with the sport. If it was always in empty stadiums, probably we wouldn't be here. Mm. Well, as you know, we love to engage with your thoughts and comments on uh, football, uh, European football, obviously, with on the continent. And you can tweet us at any time during the week at Nikki Bandini, at Andy Brassel, at Dotton Adebayo, and at Football Ramble. Choose any of those um, Twitter Twitter handles even. Choose any of those Twitter handles and get in touch. And we get a lot of tweets, but I've chosen... A hat trick of tweets here, which and and I'll hold my hand up. If 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 these, um, if you're not chosen this time around, do not worry. Send your tweets anyway because we can incorporate them into the discussions um, somehow or other. But anyway, this one is from Jack Beresford. First of all, uh, to you, Nikki. Brahim Diaz, he's been fantastic since joining Milan on loan. Why did things not work out for him at Manchester City or Real Madrid? Is there any way back for him in particular to Real Madrid? Well, I, I would yeah, I would challenge the premise that it hasn't worked out for him at Real Madrid since he's technically he's on loan at Milan at the moment for a couple of seasons. But it, it, it's in a very real scenario in which he ends up back at Real Madrid. And, and what they might actually have done is farmed him out usefully to someone who, as I think I was touching on earlier in, in this um, podcast, I think is an excellent man manager of, of young players. So perhaps they're just very smartly using someone else as a, as a, as a developing ground for one of their talents. But Sometimes uh, you, you get loaned while the manager you don't get on with or doesn't rate you just leaves. <laughs> yeah. don't, don't you? And it's, it's interesting it's that Ancelotti is doing, making great strides with some of those younger players that, that, that Zidane didn't really. Mm. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, he's got bags of talent and I think he's in a good spot and, and we'll see where he is in a couple of years' time. Uh, this is another one for you, Nikki, from JD Cameron. Fiorentina were brilliant in the first half uh, versus Inter. What has sparked them in your view? Who is Vincenzo Italiano and where did he come from? Yeah, well, so I suppose that um, is the uh, um, the question and answer was was all contained in one. There, what has sparked them? Vincenzo Italiano, ah. who is uh, wonderfully named. His name in English is Vincent Italian, which just <laughs> sounds like a character you've made up on Sesame Street or something. But um, he's um, he's a really, really um, uh, a manager to keep an eye on. He's he's one of those ones who's climbed very, very rapidly from being someone who'd had a couple of jobs in Serie D 
He takes over Trapani in Serie C, gets them promoted immediately to the second tier, which they've only been to once before in their history. So that was already like a pretty impressive thing to do in his first season there. Moves on to Spezia, takes them up to Serie A. Um, first time playing in, in Serie A in, in, in its um, uh, post-war uh, existence, certainly. And... Um, and did well, you know, kept uh, Spezia up in, in, in Serie A. And now he's gone on to Fiorentina, which I think is a really great spot for him because Fiorentina are a club that are a little bit of a of a sleeping giant, a club that had potential that had been untapped the last few seasons, certainly. And, and in particular, one player, Dusan Vlahovic, who I think is really um, special. And look, I, I can sort of give you a broad brushstrokes picture of him um, and, and a lot of it will sound like, I, I think, a hundred other managers who you could talk about nowadays. He likes a, a very sort of high, win the ball, high up the pitch mentality. He has very aggressive teams. When Spezia beat Milan last season, that was what everyone was talking about, was how aggressive Spezia were taking the game to a team like Milan. But there's lots of managers who do that and don't do it as well. I think when you see Italiano's team, what has really stood out about them is positioning in, in the fine details. I think his teams defensively move really in sync together and, and are just very impressive to watch. So yeah, he's a, a good manager who you want to keep an eye on and that is bluntly the difference with Fiorentina this season. Uh, Andy, are you impressed with the, the name at least in Vincenzo Italiano? <laughs> Look, anything where you've got context where Fiorentina are, are playing well is, is, is fantastic. The more airtime that strip gets, the better. <laughs> yeah, indeed. Prince will be delighted that you mentioned that, the late great. Uh, this one is for... Both of you. It's a really interesting question from Callum Jones, who says, if you were a professional footballer, who would you find it most infuriating to play against? And uh, why is it Marco Verratti? (laughs) (laughs) One of my favourite Marco Verratti moments is when Carlo Ancelotti was uh, the, the, the coach of... Of, of Paris Saint-Germain and I, I, was, I was covering them playing away at Montpellier on a Sunday night and uh, this was young Verratti at, at PSG get the ball in front of the defence take way too many touches because he's just got this innate confidence in, it, in, it, in himself um, second time he does it he loses the ball uh, Mamadou Sacco makes a last man foul and gets sent off and the normally unruffable Ancelotti is absolutely doing his nut Walter <laughs> Mazzari style on the touchline and then five minutes later Verratti's doing exactly the same thing with the ball in front of the penalty box as if it never happened and at that point Ancelotti's head is on fire it's, it's incredible and that's before we even get to the bit where Laurent Blanc said I've never known a footballer talk so much. <laughs> Which I think would be quite nice. I, if, if you're talking in Callum's question about playing alongside someone, I quite like a bit of chat while the game's going on. So for you, it would be Marco Verratti then? I, no, I, I, I like the chat. For, for me, it would be a central defender who I could never get, but I wouldn't enjoy playing against Collini or um, oh, Benucci. No, no, yeah. I wouldn't enjoy that at all. You'd have yeah. you in his pocket the entire 90 minutes, I'd say. Well, I think we could pretty much say that about any professional <laughs> footballer. That's, that's not the point. <laughs> it's true. I, I definitely have a space in my heart for Verratti. You know, I was fortunate to interview him a few years ago and he was one of the really great, fun interviews, a uh, really good sport and, and just uh, a character. I always remember him talking about um, a game when he was uh, a kid, when he was uh, not supposed to be on the pitch, he was on the bench um, 
but uh, the team was going to score and he ran off the bench and slide tackle someone and, <laughs> and I asked him if he would do it I can't remember if I've told this story on this podcast before I asked him if he would do it on, in, a, in a World Cup final if it came to it and he said well obviously there's certain things you can't do as a professional but yeah in a heartbeat <laughs> uh, and, uh, and yeah so I, I, I do love Verratti um, I, I think yeah, the boring honest answer is gosh probably just someone like Salah because I'd have no chance in, in, in hell of keeping up with him so it'd be a frustrating afternoon for me watching him run past me over and over and over again <laughs> um, but uh, it's either that or it's someone who I adore like Papu Gomez where I'd just be frustrated that I can't dance along with him So games of the week time uh, one from you Nicky and Andy do you want to go first? Atletico Madrid versus Barcelona Saturday night um, Antoine Griezmann's going to score in this. There's, you sure there's about absolutely that? no doubt. Are you doubt sure about, about it. that? It's, it's just the, the, the poetry is irresistible. I think it'll be interesting, especially as I said, Atletico haven't played that well recently. Um, so you never know. But they're going to beat Barcelona by hook or by crook. I think it'll be very interesting to see exactly how it folds out. One of our listeners actually uh, wrote in and said, um, I, I, don't, I don't have the tweet to hand, unfortunately. Um, in the old days on OTC, we used to uh, recommend food to, uh, to, to eat while to, it was... To go with the game. While it was, it, it, it was going on. I, I think because this is going to be really attritional, I think you're going to need something like a goulash or some, <laughs> some, some, something like that. Some, something something right. quite substantial. To get your teeth into. Uh, is some, something that's going to take you a while to get through. Uh. Denver Bar once recommended me chicken yasser. Apparently that, that, that keeps you on the sofa for days. So maybe that <laughs> would be the one. And don't forget to add, it's Denver Bar's sister who cooks him those delicious It, it certainly is. Yeah. Don't forget that. Nikki. Oh, well, if it's for the food pairing, I almost want to pick a different... There's a few good games in Italy this week and there's a Turin derby on, on Saturday and, and it's tempting to go with that just so I can say and you get your bagna cauda in, which is a Piemontese dish, which is like a... Uh, it's, it's actually like a hot dip, basically, made with garlic and anchovies and then you get vegetables and, and, and have them with it and it's really nice. But it's not my game of the week. My game of the week is Fiorentina against Napoli on Sunday uh, at 5pm UK time, I think, which... Um, Charles C. Vincenzo Italiano, you've just heard me waxing lyrical about. Napoli, who've won six out of six in Serie A. So um, really uh, fascinating to see how far they can take this start under Luciano Spalletti because they were a dark horse for me at the start of the season. But right now they're, they're front runners in Italy. So that game, I mean, it's Napoli. So you could, you could have a, a great Neapolitan pizza or if you're feeling... Those purple shirts, maybe uh, un, una bistecca la Fiorentina, a Fiorentina steak, which is basically a, a, a big cut. It's a particular cut of steak off the bone, um, a bit like a, a sort of a T-bone uh, steak, which you know, in, in, in Italy you just order a Fiorentina and you get a nice big steak. And why not on a Sunday night? Spoil yourself. Give me more, give me more. <laughs> <laughs> This was a Stack production and part of the ACAST Creative Network. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, 
Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code PROGRAM.